0: A million dollars. Hot dog. I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Barry Cohn of Jorgensen HR has seen it all. A self-made entrepreneur with three successful careers under his belt, and his main lessons are fundamental to running a good company. As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduced you to, like Barry. Hopefully you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. I have the distinct pleasure talking to my good buddy, Barry Cohn, who I've known for, I think, about 22 or 23 years when you were becoming the president of your previous business. Now you're the CEO of Jorgensen HR, which is really a natural progression from that career. So the career before this was employee benefits and the career before that was as a business banker. You spent 20 plus years in both of those and they seem to kind of meld into each other and probably interrelate. Can you add to that a little bit? Tell us about your background.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I was in middle market corporate banking for 25 years and I was managing a book of business. Uh, and also managing uh, Santa Barbara to Burbank for a major bank in the middle market and had a nice loan authority. Uh, at that time, was $3 million, which today would be $8 million, so I could approve things with my pen. My loan authority was $3 million in the year 2000, yeah, which today with inflation would be closer to $8 million. And, um, but the problem is when you move up in banking is that you, know, you you don't see customers anymore. You don't see clients. You spend a lot of time in meetings and pushing paper. And my wife made me an offer I couldn't refuse, which is let's grow our business. And she had an employee benefits business with a part-time employee and 20 uh, group accounts. And I joined her uh, 21 years ago and we grew it to 300 group accounts, 1,000 Medicare and 600 individual and up to 20 people. And uh, so the parallels are, but it's a Rolodex and I'm talking, talking to clients and I love talking to clients. And so about eight years ago, on the employee benefit side, we started doing HR, and uh, we started growing HR. You know, from 2,000 a year to 10,000 to 20 to 40. And our last year, we did $80,000 in revenue in HR, and we said, you know, maybe we should buy an HR firm. And that's when we found out that our good friends at Jorgensen were uh, up for sale. So we bought Jorgensen. So we're basically doing the same thing we did before, which is talking to companies and helping their HR and CFOs and CEOs. Uh, with their employees, so I want to talk about that.
0: So it sounds like what you did is, while you were in the benefits business, essentially selling health insurance for companies' employees and other benefits, you were adding value to what you were doing by providing services for HR departments that that would help them. Just added value, kind of sprinkles on the donut, really adding value where you could. And then you realized there was another enterprise to add to it. So you started, did it become a profit center or was it a value add or was it both?
1: It was both. For the larger clients, it was a value add. For the smaller clients, it was a profit center. We set up a separate entity for insurance reasons uh, in order to get ENO insurance for the HR part. We had to separate it. And that kind of worked out because we sold the benefits firm and we still own the HR firm. But, exactly. but the, to answer your question succinctly, we realized that, Companies had issues with HR compliance, with the Affordable Care Act compliance, and they needed help because they don't really have HR departments that are fully functional and trained in HR. So we started moving into the HR area about 10 years ago, which is when the Affordable Care Act was passed. And we started helping clients and we realized that the way we used to do things You know, if you just talk to a client, you sell them insurance and you come back a year later at renewal, you're collecting money, but you're not providing value. And we believe in providing value.
0: I love that approach. I also love that you saw a need and solved the problem. And by doing so, you added value, not just to to your clients, but to your own business. When you bought the Jorgensen HR uh, company, was it with the plan that you would then divest of the employee benefit business or was it that just serendipitous?
1: Kind of serendipitous. We had planned on just buying Jorgensen HR, who we knew uh, for over 20 years. When Karen Jorgensen started it, she was in a CEO group with me. And when she sold it to Linda Harris uh, 18 years ago, I was involved with her in talking about how to do it and when to do it and how much and all that with my CEO group. So, And we had mutual clients. So the Jorgensen HR was a natural progression. Uh, We hadn't planned on selling the benefits firm. But the market was right because of what's happening in the benefits industry. And we were approached by 15 different entities interested in us. So we decided to, to do that. And then naturally, it'll be one year, June 1st, that we did that.
0: Congratulations. I know that from going through it, that it's both traumatic and terrific at the same time. So I, I want to congratulate you on getting through it. Um, you mentioned a couple a minute ago, you mentioned a CEO group. And I want to talk about that later on, because I think uh, part of who you are and part of how you've grown as a business owner and a, and a general manager of your company has been because of the help of the CEO group. The and I, and I want to talk about that, but I also know you have a lot of personal principles that go into your business, and I, I know that you and I have spoke about it personally before. And I, I just think I think it's really critical that someone listening to the podcast understands that running a business is not all business. There's a lot of personal that blends into it to make you successful. You can't, I don't believe that business is business and personal is business. I, personal is personal. I believe that you have to blend that which makes you human into that who, who runs your business. Maybe your emphasis is a different place, but I know you and I speak the same language when it comes to that and you speak it better than me. So I thought I'd ask you to elaborate a bit. Well,
1: that's an interesting point because I think that who you are in your life, whether it be work and you know, work-life balance is a big topic these days, but I think that who you are, you know, personally and who you are in business should be pretty similar. And about when I was in banking, I had a client who, when I picked him up as a client was doing 11 million in sales and they got up to a billion dollars and sold it. But they had a saying, which is you take care of your employees and they'll take care of your business. And then the second point would be, if you take care of your vendors, they'll take care of you when you need them. And so, you know, going back to my background uh, is, you know, it's kind of like the golden rule, but you know, you treat people they want to be the way you want to be treated. And so, in business, we take care of our employees. We make sure that they have a good life-work balance. Um, and um, if we take care of our employees, then you know, we're going to take care of our clients the same way, which is we treat them like family.
0: I remember early in my career when you and I were just getting to know each other, I remember you sharing that you had, I think it was once a week, you, you, you brought in a masseuse to do shoulder rubs and back rubs for your staff. And I, and I did that a few times. I did it when I was on, on vacation. I would send them in like the Friday before I come back thinking my staff really had a tough time while I was gone. There was a lot of stress going on. Let's give them one last pat on the back for a good week before I get back. But I didn't do it on a regular basis. But then I think today in today's climate, where you have to be a little bit careful about personal space and that sort of thing, was, do you have to worry about that now? Would you do that now, for instance?
1: Um, the answer is yes and what we did was it wasn't really a shoulder it was a full masseuse uh, who came in with a table and it was in a locked room and it was a full massage for a half an hour Uh, and all of our employees got a massage once a month and then we also had yoga once a week and so covid kind of changed that Uh, so on the benefit side here we do have yoga thursday morning so tomorrow morning at 7 a.m there'll be yoga here Um, And the company that bought us, Heffernan, they also had yoga, they also had massages, they also have meditation hours, um, and they have healthy workout hours. And so they really care about their employees. Now, at uh, at Jorgensen, it's a little more challenging because we only have three people in the actual office. Uh, We have an accounting person, we have an admin person, and we have a junior HR consultant that used to be an admin. But all the HR consultants work remotely, and they've worked remotely for 20 years. So it's kind of hard when you have remote employees to do those kind of things. Although, you know, like on Employee Appreciation Day, everybody got a gift card for lunch. And the gift card, I think, was $50, which means they can really buy a couple lunches with it. And, you know, we, we do things uh, special, but I think the important thing is that you got to take care of your people, and you got to look at ways to do that. And even though most people are still remote, you have to find ways to make things um, fun. Let them know you care about them. Pat them on the back. Um, you know, if you talk to people uh, about whether they're happy with their company or not, fifty-four percent in the latest ga- latest Gallup poll, fifty-four percent of employees believe they'll be at a different job next year. Yeah. That means 54% are not engaged. And the question is, why not?
0: Right. I'll, I'll also add that if, that a vast majority of people, you may know the statistic, will take a pay cut if they can work for a company that shares their values.
1: That's exactly true. Especially uh, if you want to talk about millennials or, or people that are younger, you know, they want to make sure they have an impact on the world uh, and that their work has an impact in society uh, and and just in general, people, you know, not, uh, pay is not the number one reason people leave companies. Right. The number one reason people leave companies are because they're either not appreciated, there's no way for them to move up and grow, or they have a boss that they're not happy with. And those are the three primary reasons why people leave companies.
0: So do you find that your clients in the HR business that are complaining to you that they're having too much turnover, are they open to looking at those other Elements, For instance, maybe they have a middle manager that's not constructive enough, or perhaps they don't, they're not employing enough social engagement with their, with their work product. Are are you able to give them that advice? Are they open to it? Or do you find that they have to get there naturally on their own?
1: I I think most company owners uh, and senior management C-suite people, um, you know, they want to see their companies run smoothly. You know, something's not running smoothly. You know, they usually will talk with us about it if we're the outsourced HR or if we're a retainer monthly. They'll chat with us about it, and then we can talk about it, talk about retention rates and how they look compared to other companies in the area or in their industry, and then we can help them. And sometimes we end up doing employee surveys to get a feel for things, and then we report back to the company. But very rarely. And when we do HR assessments, we call them assessment, but they're really audits. We do audits all the time of companies and their HR practices, which also includes hiring and, and retaining employees and what have you. And I would tell you that 95% of the time, the owners are receptive to improving things. When someone doesn't want to improve things, they probably won't hire us after the assessment to do right. anything. Or any right. But you know, it doesn't happen that often. You know, it happens once in a while, but it doesn't happen that often. You know, the answer, the simple answer to your question is, yes, uh, management and owners are receptive. They
0: are receptive
1: to looking for uh, opportunities to help their their employees have a better uh, experience at those companies.
0: We're going to take a short break and be right back. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crisis, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. You may remember Janice Miller of Miller Haga Law Group from our episodes, Saving Nigel in season one. Miller Haga supports businesses of all sizes from large to small no matter what phase your business is in from startup to wind down miller haga law group acts as your innovative general counsel their experienced team of lawyers will keep the gears of your business turning if you want to minimize your liability while maximizing your profits with competent and efficient counsel contact millerhaga.com for more information that's A.com. document technology continues to be a challenge for businesses as they go back and forth from working remotely to working in-house. One of the challenges facing management is that documents need to be shared. They also need to be secured. There's privacy issues, there's access issues. Those are the types of things that keep people up at night. Mercury Document Imaging has been solving problems like these since 1982. We are in a unique position to leverage our years of experience with our tremendous resources to solve this and other similar problems. We do it economically. More importantly, we do it efficiently. So if you have issues that you'd like us to help with, please call 818-782-1221 or go to mercurydoc.com, M-E-R-C-U-R-Y-D-O-C.com. We are back, and you're listening to Small BizCast with Joel Volk, and I'm interviewing Barry Cohn of Jorgensen HR. Let's talk about the mistakes people make when they're hiring. The laws are always changing. The laws regarding hiring, firing, have changed from the last couple of years till now. You can't ask certain questions regarding salary history any longer. You can't ask questions uh, that may, may uh, creep into the personal lives of people too much, but there are some questions you can ask. And I think that it, it being a moving target, it's also a little bit of a minefield if you're an employer trying to get the information you need to vet a potential employee while at the same time not violating any laws. And hopefully as they're growing, as we're all growing as a society, hope, not creeping into places that it really are not right to creep into whether there's a law or not. How how do you advise your people? How do you teach them not to make mistakes? And what are the big mistakes that you see being made?
1: Well, I think that the biggest mistake uh, business, businesses have in hiring people is looking at skill set rather than culture fit. The most important thing is how is that new person going to fit into your company, into your company's culture? How will they affect everybody else? Uh, and that's really important. I went to a right before COVID. I went to a A labor HR conference in Santa Clarita, and there was like 400 people there. And uh, there was a panel, which I was on. Every single person on the panel said hire for culture fit. Yeah. Every one of them. And so, for example, in our company, when we have 15 people and we have 12 HR consultants, every new HR consultant we bring on is going to affect all the other HR consultants. So when we have a monthly meeting of all the HR consultants and we're doing roundtable discussion of client issues or labor law changes or what have you, you know, everybody, they have to fit into how to the way we operate. So the most important thing is hiring for culture first and then hiring for skills. You can always teach people things, but you can't. Um, teach people to be nice to other people. You can't teach people to fit into a company's culture. And so I think the, the thing that most companies don't do is really get to know the person and understand how they, how they operate and function and their values and their core values. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing.
0: That was a big epiphany for me in my career when I started hiring people for the way they spoke and the way that they fit in on a personality basis. Thinking that I could teach the, I could teach the skills, we can teach what buttons to push, what processes to follow. Till I learned that, it was a bigger challenge for me to keep the longevity of employees and also to keep the the peace in the office. And 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 I adopted mm-hmm. this entire philosophy that my job is one of my jobs as the owner of the business the leader of the business is to manage for stability is to make decisions that that minimize the amount of changes because every time there's a change that means you're taking steps backwards before you t- before you move forward once i had that realization i was able to do a lot more with the with the resources we had and by the way the people were happier when people are happier they want to stay longer and they want to they want to see you succeed so they can grow and so yeah you have a exactly. you have everybody moving in the same direction it just it just works so much more easily and as a since being running a business can be challenging that takes away some of the challenge
1: yeah and i gotta say that you know in our early days in the benefits business we didn't hire for culture we hired for skill set we hired people that had experience and what have you what we learned is that they had experiences at other companies and they necessarily weren't great experiences Uh, Are great skills, and they did things differently than us. And so we decided, and this goes back 15 years, that we can hire for culture fit first. We can teach them how to do the procedures, the processes, how to interact with clients and what we expect. And even on the HR side, we have longevity with our consultants. Our consultants have been with us 20 years, 30 years. The company's 38 years old. We have some consultants that have been with us for 30 and 35 years and some 20 and 25 and some 10 because the environment is great. They get along. They like what they're doing. And so that's very important. The one thing that people ask me when I bought Jorgensen HR and when I started, which I, I own them now for two years, but three years ago, I started chatting with Linda Harris, who's the owner, who is the owner. And she says, what do you plan on doing? And I said to her, you guys have a great brand and a great reputation and your clients love you. And I'm not going to change any of that. The only thing I want to do is grow. I think there's a lot of growth opportunities here. So if you ask any of the HR consultants now, two years later, they're doing the same thing they always did and they love to do. And we're not changing that. And we, we know we've added some technology and we've co- codified some procedures that were in people's heads and now they're written down, but we're, we're doing what we always did.
0: Let's talk about the CEO group that you mentioned earlier. I have a feeling that that is a little bit of how you got to where you are in what you just described mm-hmm. is from learning from some of these folks. So please give me an overview of what that is.
1: Okay. 25 years ago and I was still in banking. I was introduced to a concept of a CEO group. The group is now called Vistage, but then it was called Tech. And one of my clients said, hey, you know, you you should really be involved in this organization. It's really helped me. And, you know, business owners are alone. They don't really have anyone to talk to. So it would be great. And they don't have a board of directors like public companies have. So it would be great if you can get into a room every month with 10 to 14 business owners and chew the fat, talk about issues. And so I joined a CEO group and I was in that group for about 20 years plus. And then I changed a a year and a half ago to a different CEO group. But it's great when once a month from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'm in a room or on Zoom now, but we'll go back to a room soon with uh, 12 other business owners that have. Financial issues, growth issues, sales and marketing issues, personnel issues. And we all talk to each other about our numbers. And I will tell you that I believe that I never would have gotten really great employee benefits. The benefits firm from two employees and a part-time staffer to 20. And I wouldn't have been able to grow from 60000 to $2 million in revenue without the CEO group. I think that I bring an issue to the group. It helped me, not that my business partner, who happens to be my wife, I can't bounce things off of her, but she has her areas of expertise. I have my areas of expertise. And some of the people in our group had other areas of expertise. And now that I'm growing Jorgensen and I'm in a CEO group, I just tell you that it's, it's, it's really worthwhile. There's things that I don't think about that somebody goes, you know, Barry, you should think about this, or you should do that. And I go, wow, why didn't I think about that? Well, because it's not in my space and it's not in my mindset, but it was in that person's mindset. So uh, I'm really high on business owners being in a peer group.
0: So I shared that group with you for quite some time, and I can tell you that it was, it was uh, critical for my success as well. Um, not, not only when I brought my own issues up, was it helpful to hear everybody's take, but it was helpful to hear other people deal with other people's issues as a third-party listener, and it helped me learn to ask the right questions and understand the nuances. And they were people that, again, they they weren't you weren't there to network. They weren't there to compete with you. You, you were not in the room with people in your industry. So you were with people that just had similar experiences running businesses, and there was no reason. To hide any truth or to be dishonest in any way, so you could really understand what they were going for, and they were vested in my success, and I was vested in their success. It was something I looked forward to every every month. It really helped me set yeah. the wheels in motion for what I needed to do to grow my business. It, it taught me what to do, and it worked brilliantly for me. And I would I would echo what you said. It, it bring people, you know, sit with peer groups. If you don't if you don't have one, uh, you know, there are there are plenty of them out there. Vistage is a good place to start, and there are some others as well, and I encourage anybody to find peers. And I think, am I guessing right that you, one of the reasons that you made a switch is because you wanted to be with people now in the same place you are in with your business now versus when you were back then. Is that a fair statement? Uh,
1: There was a gentleman that uh, started a company 25 years ago uh, and joined our CEO group, and he used the group to figure out his exit strategy from the business. He had three key people in the business, and one in particular, he wanted to be president and take over. And this is the year that's happening. And he's still in my new new CEO group because he joined me at the new group. And the the gentleman that's taking over as president is in the group too. Uh, He's in his 40s. Um, And I think that David would tell you that without that CEO group, he wouldn't have been able to figure out how to get his three people up to speed. Right. Um decide who to who to lead the company and and how to do an exit that made sense for his clients as well as for the company
0: That's great. That's great. What advice do you have for people who are trying to grow their business and they're trying to avoid the pitfalls that you might have encountered and besides the CEO group we know that but what else what else have you what other wisdom can you impart?
1: I think the problem a lot of businesses have is, their sales and marketing efforts are cyclical. They don't do something for marketing every single day. And i never forget when I was in banking, um, the chairman of the bank, whose office was less than 20 feet from where I sat for 20 years, would come through every day and go to to everybody individually, what do you do for marketing today? What do you do for sales today? You have to have a plan, you know, a, a year annual plan of marketing and sales. Where am I now? Where do I want to go? And you have to have a monthly goal and a weekly goal and you have to have daily to do's because otherwise you don't get there. And so mistakes that I made in the benefits business as we grew it and we grew it from, you know, 60,000 to 120 to 240 to 500 to a million dollars is that as you're bringing in business, it takes so much time to bring in a couple clients that you forget to do marketing for the next quarter or the quarter after. So number one is. You have to do something for sales and marketing all the time. You can't let something slip. Uh, That's number one. Number two is, in running a business, there's functional areas in a business. There's finance and administration, there's sales, there's marketing, which is two different things. If you're a wholesaler, you got to buy inventory, you got to watch your inventory, you got to watch your receivables. If you're a manufacturer, you have to buy raw materials, you have to produce the goods, You have to have good quality control, but you have all these functional areas in a business. And where people get in trouble is when they either don't understand a functional area of the business or may neglect it. So as a business owner, you have to always watch every major part of your business. There was a book I read a number of years ago called Big Profits from Small Companies. And it talked about how companies got in trouble because of functional area inexperience or functional area neglect. And I'll give you an example of functional area inexperience. Most people start a company because they're angry or pissed off or upset at (laughs) the current company they work for, but they're salespeople and they know how to sell. So they go, "I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to sell." But they have know nothing about finance and administration, and nothing about cash flow. And if it's a wholesaling operation, they know nothing about inventory control. So they have functional area inexperience, and so. Some of those companies grow for a few years and then get themselves in trouble. In some, they end up out of business because they don't watch something. Uh, And then you have people that understand what those functional areas are, but they don't pay attention to one of them. Mm -hmm. So I had a client a number of years ago in banking that during a recession, his inventory ballooned by a million dollars and he wasn't aware of it. Well, he should have been getting weekly numbers on inventory, receivables cash flow, what have you. So one of the things I have that I would not live without is a rolling four-week cash flow. I think at Friday, every single week, I get a report. Here's the cash flow for the next four weeks, week by week. Here's what we expect to come in. Here's what we have to go out. Is it plus or minus? But I'm always watching cash flow because cash is king. And then I'm watching all the other areas of business. So you know, overhead. I mean, I can just tell you that in my, in my business, if I say that my phone's my internet costs me 500 a month and my IT costs me 1200 a month, I mean, I know what the costs are for every aspect of the business. My payroll is about $18,000 every two weeks. I know what that is. So if, if, if I know what those key items are, if something's out of kilter, I'm going to know it or I'm going to ask. So I just saw a, an ACH debit through our bank account. For $375, I didn't know who that company was. So I sent an email to my accounting person and said, what is this? And she goes, oh, it's so-and-so, that's how it comes in. So now I know that, but it, it, it hit me as a red flag. So, you know, I just think that you, you gotta understand all the areas of your business and you have to be aware of all of them. And the problem is that when you start a company you don't know all of those areas. And so you have to learn them or you have to hire people to help you in those areas.
0: That sounds like amazing advice. The when the when the company is very small and you don't have the staff, it may be challenging to do that. But I think you're, what you're saying is you have to make that a priority to what you're doing. You have to manage that cash flow so carefully. I think that in some respects, you know, walking around turning off light switches is, is a fool's errand because you have to. I like to work on growing the business when it comes to revenue and so on. But 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 you're absolutely right. If you don't have the cat, the cash flow is everything, especially when you're trying to grow because it costs money to grow.
1: I used to teach entrepreneurial management and financial statement analysis at UCLA. I did it for 14 years, and the first night, I always asked the people in the class, and some were business owners and some were finance people, "Why do companies go out of business?" And you hear a lot of different answers: government regulations, you know, foreign competition bad receivables, you know, uh, stale inventory. You hear all these excuses when it really comes down to management. Mm -hmm. Management is the reason why companies go out of business. But the number one reason that fast growth companies go out of business is they run out of money. Right. And they don't recognize what what that is. So let's give a quick example. If you're doing a million dollars in sales a month or 12 million a year, and your receivables turnover in 60 days, you collect them in 60 days, your receivables are 2 million. And let's say you're a distribution business, so you have inventory and your inventory is 2 million to start with. So a year later, you're doing 2 million a month in sales or 24 million. So your receivables jump from a million a month, uh, your receivables from a million to 4 million. Your inventory goes from 2 million to 4 million or whatever the number is. The question is, how do you finance or how do you pay for the extra $2 million in inventory and the fact that you've got to carry another million and so in receivables? Right. Well, your profits have to do it, but your profits aren't that high. And so more companies go out of business because they run out of money. And we don't understand that there's a, there's a growth pattern uh, of all companies, and it's called sustainable growth rate. And so people have to recognize what cash flow is and how it affects you because that may affect, you know, I've seen business owners, go. I'm going to hold this year, I'm going to grow 50%, I'm going to do this. And my own first question is, well, what's your cash flow going to look like? And are you going to have enough money? And they go, well, why one time? And they don't recognize that their receivables are going to double, their inventory is going to double. But remember, you got to pay your payables in 30 days, right? usually, or earlier. So there's a mismatch there.
0: Getting back to what you were saying earlier, take care of your vendors. They'll take care of you.
1: You better pay them in 30 yep.
0: days. Well, this is terrific. Is there? uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how we get a hold of you?
1: Jorgensen HR. And I'll give you my tagline we're results oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Uh, JorgensenHR.com. That's J O R G E N S E N H R.com. And our phone number is 661 600. Two zero seven zero. I want to thank you, Barry. I think you've been a terrific guest. A
0: lot of great nuggets. That's what I always always look for, someone to teach us to run our businesses better while they're telling us how well they run their businesses and why we should use you. So I think you've accomplished those
1: very well and I appreciate it. Thank you. And I got to tell you that over the years I've made many mistakes. I am very human. I learned a lot from my mistakes. Hopefully I can help other people avoid some of those issues that I had.
0: Oh man, that's why I'm here too. Thanks. Barry Cohn of Jorgensen HR, a pleasure talking to you. I always enjoy talking with you. I'm glad we did it on the podcast finally. Uh, Something I have wanted to do since I started the podcast is get you on because you have so much to offer and so much to teach us as a business person. I love that there are principles and purpose behind what you do professionally. It leads to a good solid business and leads to a business that can grow and scale and ultimately be sold. And you were an excellent teacher for us today. So thank you so much. There are so many ways companies can protect themselves from disruption, plus all the drama and the added costs associated with crises but companies continue to avoid or ignore taking these basic steps. In the next episode of Small Cast, Michael Poldy of Polley Partners will tell us what we need to know. Here's a sneak
2: peek. It was very difficult technology-wise to move large amounts of data long distance. So everything was taped back up mm-hmm. and everything was primarily taped in the data center and then someone would put the tape on a truck and they would drive it 30 miles away or 10 <laughs> miles away and they would store the tape for a week. And then uh, every day the truck would come with a new route of tapes. And then after day seven, that you know the tape that went there on Monday, the previous Monday was coming back to go back into the rotation. Like to then they got wrong. more sophisticated. They did something called electronic yeah, exactly. And they would do, we would, we would and we did this because, uh, you know, fortunately we, we invested a lot of money and we went from a, I'll say a technology ladder to a technology leader by implementing things such as electronic vaulting of tape, where we'd electronically move data. And then it was duplication of disk data. And then it got to be very high availability infrastructure. So you would have multiple computers within 10 miles apart or up to a hundred miles apart Small
0: BizCast drops every other Tuesday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thanks again for our sponsors, the Miller-Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. And remember to support Fit for the Cause. And of course, thanks to my producer, Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.